You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome listeners uh, to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. On this episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about science, and my challenge to myself is I want to make this as fun and engaging as possible because I'm afraid that what happened is someone looked at the title that said data and they just said, nope, I'm out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so I try to make the title sound fun. Um, I'm hoping that uh, that we can make this discussion sound fun. Uh, you know what? I'm not even hoping. I'm just going to do it. This is going to be fun. I like it. Okay. I, like the, I like the commitment. Yeah. I mean, this so, is something I feel very strongly about. I think you feel strongly about what we're going to say. Yeah. We were talking about the right before we record, like we need to keep this under like 38 hours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you could, you could dive into a lot, right? Yes. Um, but we went up to Facebook. We pulled everybody that is following the, uh, the why we do, we do Facebook page. And we had some cool things. I want to go through those real quick. Yeah, man, cool? read them off. Just kind of keep them fresh. Let's do it. All right. So Marie chimed in and said, just a few ideas, but not sure it would be the best to discuss here or in yet another podcast. It looks like she said baseline and uh, possible adaptations for contextual fit. Um, so how to kind of make, I guess, your data practices or how to understand data in different contexts, maybe? Yeah, I guess how to do baseline, for example, um, if you are doing something in a clinical operation versus a more private operation versus a like one-on-one -on -one situation, yeah. those kind of things, which is a great question. Ashley was talking about a specific display tool that we'll get into. Adam chimed in asking about database decision protocols, which man, we can go into like so much there. So yeah. we will do a little plug there. Yeah, um, Adam, I'm just gonna say, we're not planning and using this particular episode to get into database decision protocols, but I, I'm more than open to that being something we do in the future, but we need to get a handle on what data are <laughs> yes. first. And Melissa wrote in how much data over how much time uh, allows for proper analysis, which kind of fits into there as well. Um, and then our own Miranda, of <laughs> course, yep, <laughs> was uh, thinking along the same way that we were really looking for this one. And she said, in all seriousness, what is data and what is not data? And it's interesting. I, I read her question after I had started preparing for this, and that was like exactly the, the direction that I was on. So we're right on the same wavelength there. Yes. So thank you for writing in. We'll do what we can. We're also going to, we have a whole system to keep track of who said what. Yeah. So we will make sure and shout out as we get into other topics related to this one in the future. But yeah, that, that kind of sets the stage. Yeah. And we'll start, you know, we last, last time that we read those things in the episode, we had said at the end, thanks. But since we just read through, I'm like, hey, if you contributed, thanks. Bam. We appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> we'll drop him as in as we remember throughout this episode too. So why don't you get us started? Yeah, so when we're going to start talking about data, it's important to simply think about how any science is going to go about doing their work. Like, what do they do? Um, and when you are in a position as a scientist that you are investigating something, you're curious about something out in the universe, you want to know um, how far away something is or how big something is or how something moves, there's a, a lot of different questions you might ask, yep. which is kind of one of the first considerations around doing around data. Um, but one thing that we, we're going to start with, at least in this discussion, is to acknowledge the fact that the universe kind of, it, it not to sound really hippie-ish, but it all sort of, there's a, a big continuous stream where everything is in a way related to other things, right? And I mean, just look at the fact that you have the gravity of the sun interacts with the gravity of our planet, which 
that affects how we go about living our lives is how close we are to the sun. If we were a little bit closer, we wouldn't be able to survive, at least not in our current form. If we were a little bit further away, same deal, right? Mm -hmm. So um, all of those things that exist out in the universe that they, they all sort of exist together and how related they are changes based on what it is. But essentially what happens is as a scientist, you need to look at all of those things and decide, I'm not interested in all of that. I'm interested in this one thing. And you have to sort of make a decision in, in that giant soup of mixed up stuff. At what point you are going to say, this is where the thing I'm interested in starts and this is where it ends. And I'm, I'm not going to worry about the stuff that are outside of that. Yep. So you got to decide what's your segment and you got to grab that segment. Exactly. Yeah. What well said. And so in some fields, that's a little bit easier than others. You're looking at things like chemistry. You can look in, say, like this is a compound or this is a chemical of a certain structure. And I can see like that. That's what it is. And, mm -hmm. you know, that it's a little bit easier to say this is definitely that chemical. In some fields, it's really difficult to really isolate what is in particular the thing that I'm interested in and how do I go about measuring that. Psychology is especially prone to this particular difficulty. So the question we have to ask is how do we go about studying these psychological phenomenon? If you think about that as you go through life, as any organism goes through their life, they are going through a lot of total experiences. And unlike there are certain things that only react to a particular set of circumstances. Maybe chemicals react to each other. They react to temperature. They might not react to how you talk to them, mm -hmm. right? Organisms are different because they can react to so many variables that are out there. So we sort of have to say we were interested in understanding how all of this works. And we're going to make the assumption that these, these organisms that are biological in nature, that they exist in this reality with us. And so any that's one assumption we have to bring into this is that everything there, we can understand it, right? It all exists in the same universe. It's not part of some metaphysical universe that we, we just don't have access to. And so we're just going to chalk any question we have up to, you know, <laughs> there's, we're going to try and investigate this under the assumption that things they're, they're available to us to know, to discover. Okay. And, um, in going into sort of how you do research, um, one textbook that I was looking at, they basically said there are three types of scientific um, investigation. There is observation, which is what it sounds like. You're just sort of checking out what's happening. There's correlation, where you're going to try and measure how two events coexist next to each other. And then there's experimentation, where you're going to deliberately change things and see what the effect is of the change that you made. Okay. Perfect. But, yeah. So regardless about how you how you go about doing it. Um, usually what's happening and what we're talking about here is that whether you're observing it or correlating it or de deliberately changing things, you're making some kind of record of whatever it is you're doing. Okay. You're writing it down, you're quantifying it, you're doing something. Mm -hmm. And that the record is the thing that we're talking about. This, the, the components of that record are what we call data. And so let's step back into the Latin of this a little bit. Um, this comes from the word, the meaning of the word, the etymology comes from Latin. Um, and I saw several words, do, dare, which may be dare, dedi, and datis. And all these refer to, some, uh, to the meaning to give. And if you look at other definitions from dictionaries and whatnot, you might see data as something like information or things known or facts. And some older definitions that were a little bit closer to that original term was a known or given fact. In the most general sort of way of trying to talk about this, and we're sitting here trying to wrap our heads around this, I think the best, most general way to describe data is 
it is the output of some observation that has been systematically organized. Okay. Nice. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. And so in a way, these organized records that we have collected, they are supposed to represent as closely as possible some important element, or if you assume so, all the important elements of the thing that you're studying. Yes, and a perfect thing that I didn't think of before, but you just reminded me of, is those things only have a certain amount of, they can only represent so much, right? Right, yeah. So I like the analogy of a map. Okay. Do you remember where this came from? No, say more about that. Okay, so the idea is that you can only look at so much or you're looking at a certain perspective, I guess, uh, right? Yeah. And so I could use a topography map if I was going to go hiking in the hills, right? But I, I like need it. a certain roadmap um, to be able to understand where to actually drive if I'm trying to drive somewhere, yeah. right? And so now that's super old, GPS, these sort of things, like maybe I need different apps for different things or whatever, right? Like yeah. the point is, is they only kind of section off and represent one thing and really only help you under one situation. That's, that's a great metaphor to think about the fact that when we, when we set out trying to observe or understand something about us and we decide we're going to investigate that and therefore we're going to make a record of that and we're going to organize that record systematically, we're only getting the snapshot that we have from the perspective that we have yep. at the moment we chose to take that snapshot. Yes. And so typically they are talked about as numbers. Yeah. And that is typically like data or people think of numbers, I'm pretty sure. If you just type in data and like look at your top Google searches across lots of different people. I've done this plenty of times. Like numbers are kind of where people end up, right? And the numbers lend themselves well to this systematic organization because numbers say like two always means two. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, 100 always means 100. And that those numbers, they allow them to always represent a quantity that everyone can sort of agree that we understand what that quantity means. And so they lend themselves well. And as we'll get into a little bit, the fact that you have assigned that quantity doesn't necessarily mean that that quantity really represents the event itself, but it represents how you chose to organize your observation about that event. Yes, exactly. So like you're highlighting like they can be used in kind of dogmatic ways. Yep. Right? And so going back to the discussion we had about if the uh, your evidence for those numbers is greater than the uh, your justification for that evidence, uh, then that's being dogmatic, right? Yep. You're making too great of an assumption is what it comes down to about what is being represented there. Something for better or worse that we all now kind of know is uh, alternative facts. Yeah, and right? fake news. <laughs> yes. And so, yeah, there's, I think there, I guess my point was, is like numbers is a common way to look at it. It's, it's one way to look at it. And oftentimes it's relied on sometimes way too much. Yeah. And I think that where I was sort of going with the fact that it doesn't necessarily represent the event itself is because there are numbers that doesn't necessarily mean that the event was captured appropriately or accurately or and, and i mean that's even kind of arbitrary because accurate to the person who collected those that information that that could be accurate to their criteria but mm -hmm. for other people it's not um which also reminds me of the episode we discussed on truth where what is your uh, incoming assumption about what is accurate what's your criteria for that right yep and so um yes it is the case that um Sometimes we look at and say, oh, if we just assign some kind of value to this, some number, then great, we got it. Like, that's all it takes. And sometimes we just need to be more careful and more deliberate about how we make those choices with our data. Ryan, let's imagine um, that there's a piece of paper on the table. I'm going to write down a bunch of digits on that. So there's numbers there, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you see these numbers. 
are those numbers data? No. Okay. My answer is no. Uh, well, and I would say that. I don't know if you're trying to set me up somewhere. I mean, kind of. I hesitated. I, I wanted to see what you what you said because, in a way, in, it a, way, in a way, yes, but yeah. no at the heart of it. Right. Well, and and really, what it depends on is the question that you're asking. Maybe Ooh. the question that you're asking is curveball. <laughs> right. The question you're asking is um, how many things are you writing? You're interested in my writing in general. And that's the, the psychological event of interest is my writing things down. Mm -hmm. So in that case, if you were, if you were taking record of those, those numbers, then that like, they could be data, right? Yeah. You could interpret it that way. And so in that case, that, that might be, there might be other reasons too, but the numbers themselves, just because they are numbers, that doesn't necessarily represent any record from an observation where I was trying to systematically organize some snapshot I have of the universe. So therefore, yep. the numbers themselves don't actually count as data just because they are numbers, right? They might count as data if you're asking a different question about those numbers, but they look like data, they are not functioning as data. If they looked like data and they taste like data. <laughs> are they data? <laughs> no, in this case, they're not. <laughs> All right, so there's a lot of different ways to like look at data and organize it and such. Um, I just have some like bullet points here. We got nominal, ordinal, interval ratio, the difference between visual and statistical analyses, right? Yeah. Visual des descriptions of it. So I don't know, where do we start here? Well, I think there are criteria by which we have sort of said we have to have these numbers in order for this to count as science, right? Um, and there are certain journals that have that sort of requirement. It's sort of like there's a there are laws that say you have to have insurance to drive your car on the road. We have similar laws about publishing and scientific research is we're, we're comfortable enough with the usefulness of numbers that that's gonna be our gold standard. Mm -hmm. Got to have those numbers there, okay? And so there are these publishers that are out there, they will only take like their, their baseline criteria for publishing in their journal is you've got to have those numbers. Yes. And then there's the opposite end, right? These yeah. predatory publishers as the, the term was coined in 2012 by Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Beal. He was a librarian and associate professor, uh, university of Colorado, Denver. And so it's these, uh, essentially people realize like, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. We're in a capitalistic world, right? Right. Um, like, Hey, if we charge the right price, people will pay and we can just publish these things without having, having to actually like look at the peer review aspect. Yeah. There's and a few pay to publish pay. journal. There's a lot actually. Yeah. And the reason they were called predatory publishers is they will actually hit you in your inbox with an email saying like, Hey, we know you do stuff. Come publish with us. Here's oh, the cost. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I've been hit with these. Have you? Um, I actually, I don't think that I have, yeah. or I'm really good at ignoring them. Okay. One of those two things is um, true. Yeah. I started finding them as soon as I was in grad school, I guess. Okay. And it always cracks me up. Like they need to do a little bit better who they're targeting. Like the last time I've done research was my thesis, me, myself, Yeah. myself in that process, but right. I value it. So I guess they're, they're, they're hitting the right group. Yeah. Um, so yeah, peer review process, it has a role, um, and it can get messy. Yeah. And in those pay to publish, which I think probably warrants its own discussion, one of the issues there is it's not really peer review because you're paying for it. So mm -hmm. the service you're paying for is this goes in a journal, yeah. not I get rigorous scientific experts who are critiquing the validity of my findings. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of assumptions here that uh, both you and I hold 
which uh, of like how science works. And the first one would be it's empirical in nature, right? Right. So there's something that is collected, some sort of information about, and it's in an objective sort of way. Yes. Right. That means it's a, it's observable. It's real. You can interact with it. It's out in the world, um, and that those data are based on those real events. Yes. And then the second assumption would be like this idea of like philosophic doubt. And that's kind of like an underlying thing that we drop into this every single episode, right? Yeah. Is we're going to hold whatever results kind of tentative and, and use them, but we're going to alter a position as like more data or different data comes to light. Right. Right. So it's synthesize that. It's taking that it's the, it's a skeptical approach of nothing is ever completely certain. And you can be, you can be very certain and be willing to accept that some something might come along that changes our understanding of this, right? So always be looking out for where it could be wrong and also acknowledging where just because you approach something with a, a level of philosophic doubt does not mean that every potential hypothesis that comes across the threshold deserves equal weight. Yes. Right. You know, if we were to say like, oh, why did you write those numbers on the page? Um, well, because I was trying to make a point versus, um, well, because an alien wizard on the moon commanded you to do it. Um, one of those things I don't really have to consider because as far as, you know, there's really no reason to believe there is an alien wizard on the moon that has any power over my handwriting. But if he does, that's a trippy world. That is, that is a trippy world. So that's one where that we don't really need to apply that, that same sort of filter on that one because we can just say there's no reason to think that this has any, any validity to it. What really might be want... interesting is to say, like, maybe someone is, uh, you know, holding a gun to your head and I can't see. Like, maybe, like, let's say you couldn't actually see me right now. Someone had a gun in my head and is forcing me to write those things down for some reason. Then that, that could be a, a more substantiated hypothesis because that could actually happen. We know that there are people who carried guns and coerced people into doing things. I really want this alien wizard to be like the first piece of like user submitted artwork. (laughs) Please. (laughs) A moon based alien wizard that commands handwriting. Uh, I will print that thing and send it back to you. If you put it in a vector file, (laughs) just throw that out there. Can we make t-shirts of it? We'll wear them. We'll consider the quality will matter here. Okay. But I will definitely like, get it up in the studio and like send a picture and post it up. Like, yeah, first piece of artwork. And we'll also send you a signed sticker or 12. (laughs) (laughs) So the signature is devaluated a little bit because we're nobodies, but (laughs) (laughs) okay. Okay. Sorry. So, okay. So we had talked about this earlier that the scientist needs to make some sort of decision on like what will actually count. Did you have some more on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, really it's before you have even started observing or collecting anything, you have to decide on, uh, what what am I out looking for out in the world? Okay, and so and what is the most suitable method for detecting it? And the decision that you make right then, right then and there, um, that's going to influence the kind of outcomes that you're going to find, and probably more importantly, how you'll in- interpret those records once they have been collected. So, for example, if I'm out in the world and I want to know um, how many times are you texting on your phone. Like I have to have a a good definition of how often are you texting? What do I mean by texting? What do I mean by day? Um, Like all of these things are, I have to decide what those are going to be. And then I'm going to go out and try and see how, how often I capture that. Abraham, that's a lot of work. (laughs) Yes. You just described a lot of work. Yes, I did. What is a day? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That will depend on what time zone I'm in. Right. And, um, and all those things. And so, this whole process of making that decision that's called an operational definition, that's not necessarily as important as the discussion about when we make that decision, 
we have to be careful that what we're focusing on is something that's happening versus an idea about something that's happening. And we've talked about in the past, there's a book by N.H. Uh, N. Pronko. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> you I like love that one? this one. Yeah. And he specifically, he makes the distinction um, between what he calls an event and a construct, which actually, I mean, this comes from Cantor, you know, mm-hmm. from that line of philosophy, but yeah. spoiler an, alert. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where an event is something that's actually happening. It happens out in the world. And a construct is our label and I like our concept about that thing. Yeah, like our understanding or yeah, I, I like label. Yeah, right. That's a good way to put yeah, it. Yeah, label is, is, a, is, a, is about sort of what a construct is. The act of me using my thumbs to tap something, right? is very different than the word texting. It is, yeah. Right? The first would be the event. The second would be the construct. Right? And, and I might look for something different if I say tapping as opposed to texting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, if I say that I'm only counting the movement of your thumbs, well, what if your thumbs are occupied and you use your index finger to go through typing a text message? Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, I might have to, I have to be really specific. I have to only specify things that I want to count and exclude things I don't want to count. And I have to make that decision beforehand Mm -hmm. because if I start changing what I'm counting as I go, well, then you're going to get totally different results. Okay. So I have an example. If we want to ask, we were, let's say we're out doing our work. We're observing some individual out in the world and we want to know how often does that kid over there pick his nose? Okay. Now I need to know and ask a few questions. Are we talking about picking his nose with his finger? Does it count if he uses a pencil? What if it's just like sort of a scratch on the inside of the nose? He's not really doing it. What if it's scratching an itch? What if he sticks his finger in someone else's nose? If he just sticks it in there and leaves it in there all day long, is that only a count of one? Or are we doing this more like a duration? What if he picks it with tissue? What if he does it with both fingers at once? What if his nose is really, really runny and he's trying to get it that way? So what if the word pick versus scratch his nose is really important? All of those things are considerations. I mean, before we've even started collecting data, we had to figure out and, you know, nose picking, great example, right? <laughs> we had to figure out um, what, what we were going to do. Can relate to it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then you have to, once you've even made that decision, then you're talking about like, okay, now what unit am I focusing on here? Am I just going to count how many times he does it? How long he does it? Maybe the, it's a percentage. Maybe it's a latency. Exactly. Right. Maybe it's the time between different responses. Yeah. Maybe I'm going to indirectly, I'm just gonna measure how much mucus is in the nose <laughs> and sounds, see if that changes. With sounds like thinking. something Pavlov probably would, would have done already. Yeah, that's true. Um, maybe I, I count instead how many boogers are consumed, wiped, how many tissues are used. Maybe I want to look at the biological nitty gritty in this. I'm going to say just how, the muscles that are moved in the fingers and assume that that's a good measure of it. I'm going to try and look at brain activity in the motor cortex and see if that's a good measure of it. How long do we observe for it? So, uh, well, okay. Um, all of those are things that are like, they could be elements of nose picking, right? But then we have to ask the question, all right, now how long do I observe to see that I've got a good snapshot? Do I observe over this kid's entire life? Do I do it in one day? Do I do it for 10 minutes? How many people do I need to observe? How many times do I need to observe? How many people need to be there with me that are counting this? Like those are all decisions that that are made before you even ever start looking at this kid picking his nose, right? Yeah. And every single one of those decisions that you have to make, that's going to affect the kinds of data that you get and the kinds of interpretations you are able to get from those data once you have them. And even if I have those two people, we're both going to show up to watching this nose picking thing I'm stuck on right now, (laughs) having different assumptions, biases, interpretations, understanding, different levels of training, different ideas about everything. 
that is going on. And we're going to have two different visual perspectives of what angle at which we see the kid. So if you're trying to watch him from like behind his head, you're going to get probably a different experience of the level of nose picking that I am. If I'm looking at him face to face, if we don't like follow this kid around or he moves away or he hides his face, like those are also things that are going to change how well we're able to gather this. So that's all talking about something as simple and clearly observable as nose picking. Now we're going to get into some hot water, metaphorically speaking, and we're going to go jump into a spa. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm going to ask to you live from the spa. <laughs> yeah. Abraham and Rhino. <laughs> yep. That's, that's what's going on here. <laughs> so I'm the, now I have to ask the question. Now I want to ask the question. We're in psychology, right? Mm-hmm. What is this kid thinking? I mean, this becomes especially tricky because got to go right back to step one. How do we define thinking? How do we know that that definition is correct at all, let alone for that person? Can we assume that if we ask them that the words that they use to describe what they're thinking is an accurate representation of those thoughts? If we were to try and measure their brain, do we have the correct instruments to get a good sensitive reading? Is the brain going to tell us an an accurate representation of those thoughts in the moment? (laughs) I mean, like these are like, this becomes infinitely complicated by by the fact that we're we're bringing to the assumption, first of all, that thinking is something that happens. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that it's not, but that is something we have to assume because we aren't directly observing it. Yeah. We can experience it. So we know that for ourselves, we have that, that, that type of thing, right? Um, We are going to assume that if we're going to do research on this, we have to pick one of those indirect methods. And it's most of the time going to be what someone says about it. So we have to assume that their language is articulate and competent and accurate enough that that is a, a adequate replacement for the thought itself that we're interested in. We end up stepping entirely away from the thing that we're really interested in, the thinking, which we've assumed exists and is meaningful in some way. And instead, we're going to choose something that we believe represents what we're interested in. And when we're interested in doing the psychological research, I mean, we got to choose the thing that has the fewest number of assumptions. We already have assumptions going into this. We assume that we live in an orderly universe where things can be studied and understood. That's a big assumption. Yep. I I mean, I think it's warranted and it's necessary if you're going to do some kind of scientific investigation, but it is an assumption, right? Okay. So... We have that assumption, but if we come into this with more assumptions, it gets harder and harder to justify that those records that we're taking, that that is meaningful in any way. So let's just take this to the logical extreme where we're, we have to make those indirect assumptions. I want to say that I want to measure the number of unicorns in the world. I'm going to go out. I'm a scientist. <laughs> I want to find out how many unicorns there are. are should they be on the endangered species list? Right. Is there something that like we can hunt them for their meat? That's okay. Right. I want to figure out how many, how many unicorns there are. So, but I, I know that I can't see them because of course unicorns are invisible. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to measure them by counting how many rainbows there are. Okay. And that's okay. going to be how I figure out how many, how many <laughs> unicorns there are. Okay. There are so many assumptions implicit in this. I have to assume that there is unicorns. I have to assume that there's some relation of unicorns or rainbows. I have to assume that I can get a meaningful count on rainbows because rainbows aren't actually things that are out in the world. They're actually a cone of light that exists in a, in a, based on where you are in relation to the sun. Um, and so like there are all of these assumptions I'm going to have to make before I go out looking for unicorns. But 
I could go out there, I could count those rainbows, and I could come back to you with precise numbers that someone else corroborated that say this is exactly how many unicorns there are in the world. Is that good information that is a accurate representation of what is going on? Most <laughs> of us are going to say no, right? Yeah. Yeah, because again, there's too many assumptions. And psychology is faced with this problem so frequently. They are out there measuring unicorns based on rainbows. And like, and we look at those research and we have to say, no, yeah. you're not even close. There's no such things as unicorns and rainbows wouldn't be an accurate measure of them, even if they were. So the second part of user generated art or listener generated art that we will throw up. Yes, please. Yeah. Unicorns and rainbows. I'm looking forward to it. So let's let's take this a little bit closer to home. Let's say medically, we want to know what kind of illness you have. What we're going to look for as a doctor, a medical doctor, I'm assuming, because that's not my my credential, but is that I want to know your symptoms that you have, okay? Symptoms, mm -hmm. they might tell me a lot, but there are also many illnesses that you might have that have very similar symptoms. So the symptoms will not be enough. So instead, what I need to do is something more direct. So the symptoms are the indirect measure of the thing. Fortunately, I don't really need to make any assumptions about that because we've got lots of, lots of information where we have said, this symptom is present every single time this person has this disease. Mm -hmm. When and only when this person has this disease, we see the symptom. Therefore, when I see the symptom, I can rightfully assume the correlated event of disease is yep. also there, right? Those That information has been well recorded. Rainbows and unicorns, not so much. <laughs> and I mean, you can verifiably look at the fact that the disease is clearly there, right? And so you could also do a test for, let's see if these bacteria are there. These are bacteria that always happen when and only when this disease is present. Therefore, this bacteria is the cause of the disease. Viruses, same thing. Those things are indirect but have a verified history of correlation with things that we can actually observe and know that are there. Mm -hmm. Now, what if I wanted to look at you inst instead and say, I'm interested in your heart rate, so what I'm going to do is measure how much you're sweating. There actually might be some statistically significant correlation there, but I could also just measure your heart rate, mm -hmm. right? And that seems to be what happens a lot in psychology. I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors and I apologize, yeah, yeah. but is that you what ends up happening is people look for something and I'm, I'm specifically thinking of questionnaires right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have been verified. A lot of them are useful and they just, the rigor of them scientifically, it makes my skin crawl is a, a questionnaire is like trying to measure the sweat of someone to understand their heart rate. And what I mean by that is it is an indirect measure that could be correlated with, with what's going on under certain circumstances, but like, it's not, it's not really that strong and there's better ways to get at what you're interested in. Yep. Yeah. And it brings up something else that I was reading on when, like last night when I was freshening up for the episode, which was even when, so like, let's say you take those and you look at your data and you've got all this laid out, like oftentimes it's just aggregated, right? Yeah. And like, it's like, Hey, there's a lot of layers to this. It eventually it likely came from an individual at one point, right? Yes. So there's that as well. Yeah. You have not, do you, not only do you have those numbers, you had to organize those records in a particular way. So I might say like, how much did you sweat per minute? and look at your change in sweat accumulated per minute, how much did you sweat today mm -hmm. as an aggregated and mm -hmm. say, what was your average heart rate related to that sweat? Um, how much is the actual like saline quantity of your sweat? Mm -hmm. I might be interested in measuring that, you know? And so 
I have to make these decisions about how I'm going to try and organize these and say, is this a percentage? Is it a ratio? Is it a frequency? Is it a duration? Is it a volume? All of these decisions that I have to make about how I'm going to try and aggregate that. And then what I have is one piece of information about a ton of records that I took. Yeah. Right. And like that can be really useful. And I think one point that I have not hit hard enough in this episode so far is we love data. It's extremely useful. Mm-hmm. It's extremely important. And what we, when we love something <laughs> like, like data as much as we do, we want to be careful that we understand how we affect our understanding and our decisions around those data. Right. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. And which brings us to ways that we can interpret those data. Yes. So there's a few different ways. First, visual analyses. It which was, means that what you, how you interpret when you're looking at those data. Right? Yep. So they're on a graph and in some way you're looking at them in some sort of representation, graph, table, etc. And Marie, Melissa, and Adam all had comments on Facebook about that were related to this sort of area. Um, I think I think we dive into database decision making as a totally separate thing that you talked about to kind of like give a quick tidbit um, for anyone that's looking at these, like you primarily look at three things, level, trend, and variability um, when you're looking at visual displays of data. So yeah, the level would be relatively like what are the values and where are those landing when it comes to some sort of graph or table. And when qualitatively, it, you can kind of like say, is it high, medium, or low? That, yes. That's what we're talking about with level. When it comes to trend, that's the way that the overall data patterns are heading. And right. then when it comes to variability, it's about how much kind of bounce or up and down movement you have in those numbers across time. Right. And there's a lot of different ways to do this. We are not consistent at all as like a larger scientific community. And like you were saying, we, we use these sort of, uh, I call them loosey goosey words to describe, <laughs> <laughs> to describe, you know, uh, my high could be your low, could be her kind of low, could be, uh, his like neutral, super high neutral. Yeah. yeah whatever. Sure. And so that's a whole thing that I want to unpack another time, not today. Um, so yeah, you can look at them visually. You can also look at them statistically. I know nothing of this. I always refer to other people. I hire folks <laughs> when it comes to looking at these sort of things to help me out or call a friend. Um, statistical analyses. I think you took some classes. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've done some, some work in the statistics like field, if you will. I mean, it was, it was pretty I can get, like beginner level stuff. Yeah. But I mean, essentially, I think the way to talk about statistics is we want to statistics is how you look at how those or those numbers are organized and see if numbers um, are meaningfully different from one another. It's sort of usually the take home is say like we have all of these numbers about all of these things that we've done. What do we what do we see in here? And yeah. the statistics is find those patterns, find what's different and talk about how those numbers relate to each other. Yep. Yeah, we can dive into p-values and all that sort of stuff some other time, right? Yeah. 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 And then another way that I've seen is, I don't know if this counts as a way to display, um, but there's like mathematical modeling that yeah. shows up. Well, this is, mathematical models are interesting because mathematical models usually, um, they they precede the data. One that we hear a lot right now for someone to kind of hold on to is like any algorithm, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And um, if people are paying attention to to some of the like what's been going on, some of the science sort of pop news, uh, I think it was last year or the year before they were looking at some movements of objects out like just outside of our solar system and sort of the Kuiper Belt area and noticed what looked like 
the movements didn't make sense and so with their mathematical model they determined that there there was probably some kind of planet out there they call planet nine and basically when you're talking about a math mathematical model what it is is saying that we you're you're saying that this this is the way that the events are already organized and so what we're going to do is we're going to watch for those events and then we're going to plug in the numbers that we get into our model mm -hmm. and the model is then going to describe how it was organized with that event right and so um the the model I mean, it, it is based off some level of observation first, like you had to see something in order to decide that the model needed to exist. But otherwise, the model precedes the thing that you're interested in by coming up with a way of describing what are the relation of these variables and, and how do those fit inside of our mathematical concepts. Um, and then again, you plug in those values as you go. And so the, the models themselves are not necessarily data, but you sort of fill them with the records of your observation again take into consideration that you had to make a ton of assumptions yep before you started plugging mm -hmm. in those numbers about what you were observing and how you were counting it and the values that you or the the, the relative um definition that you use to um, just lots of things right okay so and i want to actually want to come back really quick because we talked about this visual display thing and there's so many like when talking about visual display display you can think of something like a, a bar graph or a pie graph mm -hmm. or um uh, some kind of what's it called? The, um, scatter plot yep. um, or histogram, or mm -hmm. like there's so many different ways of visually representing data. And the one that they wanted to talk about, some of the people who, who, who messaged us through the, the Facebook inquiry was one that is called the standard acceleration chart. And, um, as you mentioned, we all sort of do this very differently. And part of the purpose of that tool was to say, like, let's, standardized some of these units of measure and uh, and that one ba is based specifically on looking at rates of behavior now it's still aggregated on s in some way or another yeah. yeah so each data point that's on there is like this is how many times we counted this in this observation that mm -hmm. we had right mm -hmm. and then you then you look at those trends and um it's, it's a great tool you and i have both used yeah. it i think we we bring up something like standardization psychology later okay maybe as a topic yeah that'd be a cool way to hit that because yeah it's useful in some ways i enjoy it but it's not the only tool out there for that and it has some strengths some really good strengths and it has yeah. has it's only useful so far like anything else in the world yeah like it's it's a tool that has a a great place to exist and we find a lot of value in it we've used it in our work yeah um, i use it every single day yeah. for work <laughs> uh for tons of things and let's it's a conversation for another time but just to say like that's one of those tools that exists for for a visual analysis of mm -hmm. interpreting data and uh, even putting data on like a table where you just organize it like that's also a visual analysis yep. of understanding yeah so for that one specifically we'll link an organization go learn more about it if Perfect. you want to all right so like uh i kind of have assumed in the role here i guess i go to youtube and i go to those sort of pop psychology sort of sources that are out there too not that youtube's that but you can find a lot of them there so the place where data are found yeah so there's i guess two things that i want to bring up here specifically it's that there's just really gross overgeneralizations of data and numbers and data actually like using a number to like prove an argument um and the just sheer number of people on like social media that have been shown to we talked about this in the past share something without actually looking at it like, right. it's just scary it's <laughs> downright scary yeah and it's not just scary that people do that but like when we put these things up, right, if it proves a point, like this actual episode could be used in that way too, right? Like it gets meta scary all of a sudden. <laughs> um, and so that was one thing. And like, I just 
watch for that, I guess. And like over time, learn more about data and it makes it a little bit easier. I'm constantly looking at data and how to understand different perspectives of it, I guess. Yeah. It's kind of a continual learning sort of thing. And the other was, uh, got to go into the crash course channel on YouTube. Um, tons of views. I actually had the opportunity to meet, meet, uh, Hank Green, the guy that runs that channel mm-hmm. at PodCon. And I got about 25, 40 minutes chatting with him on and off. It was pretty cool. Great. And he, he does it really well in describing, bringing in the scientific method, talking about some of the similar things that we talked about. So if you're looking for like a 10 minute short video, um, it's a great start. And one thing that he really hit was the fact that replication and is needed and it's an important part that I think we never talk about enough. One of the things that's been happening, and we actually did discuss this in previous episodes, is that psychology has had a problem recently <laughs> where people, uh, specific groups, have sought to replicate studies and have had a lot of, lot of difficulty doing that. And part of the reason that that can happen, and I'm not saying that that is exactly what happened here, but one of the things that can happen is when those definitions are unclear and the decisions are unclear and the rationale for those decisions is unclear, then it does become difficult to replicate because you are measuring something in a different way, right? And that that can be a problem. Um, and there can be a lot of reasons that replication doesn't happen, but that's one of the re- like it's so important to be careful about how you go about selecting your decisions and then carefully documenting those decisions so that when we go to try and do those studies again we have an opportunity to actually compare them because if we have two studies that have two different findings but solely because we use two different measurement systems that's very difficult to learn a whole lot of information about right um, and unfortunately people do this intentionally when yeah. they sponsor research that they that they have a financial stake in the outcome of that research. If you're a sugar company that makes actual sugar, yeah, and you want to know how healthy regular sugar is versus like artificial sweeteners, mm-hmm. you and not saying that they do this, but they do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can organize the data collection just the data collection portion of it so that you're more likely to get the outcome that says that you have the healthier product. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other things you can do too that are te- technically scientifically okay that will still allow you to find the the outcome that you need just to keep your financial stake in that particular process going, right? Yes. Cool. So this kind of gets us more into our particular I guess, views and how we look at data, right? Right. I like to talk about it as the things that are described around us. So they could be quantified, right? Yeah. But it's just those things that are surrounded, uh, I guess, that surround us. And I like that point because that brings it back to the fact that your perspective when you collect data affects your interpretation and your um, your system of collecting data. So if you want to really get into it, uh, the question, I guess, to... I'll leave listeners with is, is there then such thing as data and IVs, uh, sorry, independent variables and dependent variables? And how do you sort all that out? That's a whole other topic we can get into. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, so data is, or data are. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we didn't say that before, but technically data, the word data is plural. That yeah. means multiple. So that's the correct verb to be associated with data is are. And then a singular piece of information would be called a datum. Yes. Yeah. So 
data are typically talked about in some sort of numbers and math. And I would say math is one sort of like language and way to look at this sort of stuff. Right. It is. Yeah. That's how I think of math as a, like this language and way to interpret and talk about and communicate about these sort of things. But at the root of it, data are really the, the events like we talked about. You've read a lot more into this than I have, but uh, cancer, what was his take on this? Yeah. So he basically said that the only, the only data available to psychologists are the interactions of organisms with other organisms or between organisms and objects and events. Okay. okay. And so you could take that and look at it visually, statistically. You can kind of slice it and dice it however it is that you really want to do that, right? As uh, Yeah. I mean, you can slice it and dice it as long as the thing that you are orienting to is, is out in the world and observable. And he is essentially making the case here that what is not available as data are things that can only be assumed to exist yes, and, and only think, inferred to exist. Yeah. And I think a good point to make here is that the way we're talking about data might not just be like, originally it wasn't, uh, I didn't quite understand it. Of like, wait, it's just the events. It's not the actual numbers personally. Um, right. But I learned, I've since learned, I want to make the point of like, you can take this and not only look at these multiple levels, but you can bring this into single subject research. Like where there's meta analyses where you summarize it all, statistical analyses, big data, like this fits in everything. Yeah, it fits. Absolutely. And uh, it also fits when it comes down to the different decision trees. So how Adam was asking about like, how do we make decisions around these sort of things? The one that he cited um, in his Facebook post, it, this totally fits within that framework. Yeah. And the reason that their framework that he linked works really well, I think, is because it uh, has this sort of logic embedded in it. But can that you, is my opinion. Can you describe that logic? Okay, yeah. So uh, I don't want to get into details because it fit way better in the database decision-making one. But essentially, there are a few ways and I guess a few people that have really looked at how do you make a database decision. And Got so it. they've created decision trees around that. Oh, um, so sort of like given, if this happens, then do this. If yep. it doesn't happen, then do this instead. Yep. So given this pattern, make these decisions or given this pattern, wait a little bit longer. Given this pattern, make these other decisions. Yeah. And what's really cool is there's not too many different ways that data can really be laid out. Oh, that's good. As I say, it does seem like... Visually. Where you could fall... Okay. Where you could fall into a trap is sticking to rules that don't necessarily apply and being inflexible with adopting new rules about making decisions. But I think in general, it's probably a great idea to have some standards of practice around interpreting data. Yeah. And so that standardization database decision-making, we can bring it back up a little bit more. Um, but basically the research, including what we'll, we'll link to um, in the show notes is that it demonstrates that when decision tree protocols are used by instructors um, of any type, like students of any type in those, those paradigms will learn uh, significantly more than when they're not used. Great. So that's decision trees. Um, but one other point that I want to make is that data can tell you what we do, I would say, but it's not going to necessarily tell you why we do what we do. Nice. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapping this all up then, I want to come back to the, the point that was made is, you know, what is available as data to psychologists? I mean, we're looking at what organisms do. And by do, we mean what their interactions are with other organisms mm -hmm. or with like events and, and objects and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That is the best way to get a handle on what they're doing. It's the most objective. It requires the fewest assumptions and it has the, the, the greatest potential for accurate 
albeit uh, arbitrary measurement decisions, mm -hmm. right? And so um, it's, you know, it's worth considering when we're talking about data that you have to factor in what are your assumptions coming into this and knowing that your assumptions are going to be different from the next person who wants to come, or in, come in and measure this. And so acknowledging the arbitrary nature of the decisions that you make about data and having some kind of reason, like this is the decision I made about this because this is going to be the most sensitive, or this is the decision I made about this because this one is going to tell me the most information about the thing that I'm interested in. And I know that sounds a little bit vague because I just keep saying this, but what I mean is that in making decisions, having a reason for those decisions to, to be, to exist, right? And knowing that whatever you choose is going to have an effect on the kind of data that you get and what you can interpret from those from those records that you've created and i guess then the big take home point really is that those those records of observations that have been systematically organized that's what we're saying data are okay mm -hmm. and so to to throw in a big metaphor out there cuz we hit data pretty hard in terms of being a little bit critical, but it's because it's so important that if science is a boat, then data is the water that that boat floats on. Ooh, I kind of like that because, so I was recently for New Year's super lucky to be in Sweden and they had one of the oldest, I think the oldest recovered ship that was there. Nice. And they, so Sweden- A literal boat. <laughs> yeah, so Sweden built up this giant boat, right? It was going to be like, it literally had the most guns of the time and that sort of stuff and went sailing in the harbor. And I think it was like a quarter mile, less than a quarter mile, like the wind gust hit it and it filled up with water and it looked like they leveled it back out. Another wind gust hit it and it filled up with more water because all the gun doors were open yeah. and it just sank in the harbor. Oh and no. it was just like everyone, <laughs> the best way to put it was a taxi driver um, was like, that was not a good day for Sweden. <laughs> and they worked, you know, dozens of years or whatever it was on like from the conception of it, like actually taken off. But what's cool there is like your, uh, the way you described it is different data can actually poke holes in different things and over time kind of sync ideas, right? Yeah. And sync different models. Science can sync that ship. That is our third and final piece or of data, art that we need to have drawn up. Yes. Ooh, I like that one. Sweet. But, Man, we threw in so much art this episode. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Like you, got, you got anything else? <laughs> no, that's it. All right. That was fun. I had, I had a good time. All right. Cool. Yeah, I guess that's it. I'm really looking forward to anyone that throws some art out out there. I will do my best to get that, that picture everywhere if you draw it. But if you don't, that's okay. It doesn't have to be you. Um, as always, thanks for listening. This is Rhino. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brucier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.